The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focused summary of Book 2, Chapters 3 through 6. Gringoire reaches the Greve and finds a considerable crowd formed in a semicircle around the fire. But upon closer inspection, he discovers that the crowd has been drawn by the beauty, not of the fire, but of a young girl dancing. Gringoire is at once captivated by the dazzling vision of this girl, who, with her slender figure, gleaming skin, dainty foot, bare shoulders, shapely legs, and flashing black eyes, seems more than mortal creature. But he is abruptly disillusioned when he discovers, after the whirl of her dance loosens a tress of her hair and a bit of brass, that she is a gypsy. Of the many faces in the crowd, one seems absorbed beyond all the rest. It is a face characterized by apparent contradictions, an expression austere, calm, and sober, yet betraying an ardent love of life and depth of passion. Scanty locks of gray hair and a forehead furrowed with wrinkles, yet possessing eyes that sparkle with an extraordinary spirit of youth. The appearance of thoughts sad and melancholy, yet gazing fixedly on a delightful dancing gypsy. The girl and her little goat perform to an eager and enchanted crowd. All, that is, but the man of the contradictory expressions, who loudly declares her guilty of sorcery, sacrilege, and profanation, and the old recluse nun of the Tour Roland, who sharply demands that she be gone. In the midst of a song so charming, ethereal, and full of joy, that Gringoire for the first time in hours is able to feel no pain, the gypsy girl's performance is interrupted by the procession of the Lord of Misrule. On its march from the palace, this procession has collected all the vagabonds and scamps and idle thieves in Paris, while Quasimodo rides resplendent in the midst of the throng, enjoying the first thrill of vanity he has ever felt. As Quasimodo the mock pope passes by the pillar house, a man in ecclesiastical garb darts from the crowd and seizes the gilded crozier from Quasimodo's hands. Gringoire at once recognizes this man both as Claude Frollo, the archdeacon, and as the melancholy soul who had gazed upon the gypsy. A cry of terror arises from the crowd, who expect to see Quasimodo tear the archdeacon limb from limb, and they are stupefied when, instead, he approaches Claude Frollo and falls upon his knees before him. After a strange colloquy of gestures, Quasimodo rises and obsequiously follows Claude Frollo, even defending him ferociously against the disappointed crowd clamoring for the return of their dethroned pope. This strange vision over, Gringoire is returned to the reality that he has nowhere to find supper and nowhere to sleep. He decides to follow the charming gypsy girl, because, who knows... As he follows her at a distance through a labyrinth of winding streets, he hears her utter a piercing scream, and upon his approach sees her caught in the arms of two men trying to stifle her cries. One is Quasimodo, who, carrying Esmeralda over his shoulder, flings Gringoire away with a single backstroke. 
Esmeralda's cries draw forth a squadron of royal troops on watch, who surround and seize Quasimodo, one of them tearing Esmeralda from his arms and laying her across his saddle. The enamored girl looks upon her hero, asks his name in a tone of hitherto unmatched sweetness. He is Captain Phoebus de Chateaupers, then jumps from the horse and flees into the night. Gringoire, who was knocked unconscious by his fall, returns to his senses and finds himself lying in the gutter. Through his dizzy haze, he recalls the violent scene he had just encountered, and imagines Quasimodo's companion in crime to have been Claude Frollo, the priest. He is brought out of his reverie when a band of roving boys throw a mattress on him and begin to light it on fire. He rises to his feet, hurls the mattress to the ground, and flees. Just as he is about to retrace his steps back to the mattress, which he realizes could provide him warmth if it is on fire, and a place to rest if it isn't, he is accosted by a motley band of crippled beggars. He is soon swarmed by them, and as he tries to escape, he finds himself in a vast square with twinkling lights, and captured by his persecutors. It is the Court of Miracles, where beggars by day transform miraculously into robbers by night. And if we read this section patiently and in focus, we can find ourselves transported to this bizarre and fascinating universe, this magic circle never before entered by honest men. Gringoire is brought before their king, who, it turns out, is none other than Clopin Troyfou, the beggar who had disrupted Gringoire's play with his cries for charity. The king declares that Gringoire is to be hanged, because just as a vagabond is punished in a land of honest men, so the honest man must be punished in a world of vagabonds. Before he is hanged, he is given the opportunity to join their ranks and become a vagrant. If he is able to stand on a stool on tiptoe and steal the purse of a mannequin without ringing its many ornamental bells, Troyfou says he will still be hanged, but he will be hanged as a vagrant, which is better. Gringoire's effort is a resounding failure, literally and figuratively, and the gallows is readied for him. But at the last moment, Troyfou recalls a custom that could save him. If any woman among them will take him for a husband, he will be spared. And in this court of miracles, a miracle occurs. From the crowd steps the pure and radiant creature Gringoire had followed through the streets, Esmeralda. She says with her signature pout, I'll take him. And they are married. Who knew? The second of my posts to the Facebook group was called Hugo the Humorist. Hugo's 93 has a near-constant tone of somber reverence. Aside from the reprieve of a delightful romp with the children in the library, a scene which itself is still cradled in danger and anguish, the reader is carried on a journey of epic value stakes and heart-rending conflicts so I have been surprised to find that the opening chapters of Notre Dame de Paris are, by contrast, remarkably funny. Here's a scene I found especially hilarious, both on its own terms and because of something I said last week. 
Remember when I commented that Hugo's duplicitous Notre Dame tour guide was probably later parodied in the pages of Hugo's novels? It seems I was right. Only, it was not later. It was prophetic, but with a superstitious twist. This passage, in which Gringoire overturns the mattress and is taken for a risen soul, made me laugh out loud. Quote, It was a critical moment. He would soon be caught betwixt fire and water. He made a supernatural effort, such an effort as a coiner of false money might make when about to be boiled alive and struggling to escape. He rose to his feet, hurled the mattress back upon the little rascals, and fled. "'Holy Virgin!' screamed the boys. "'The junk dealer has returned!' And they took to their heels." The mattress was left mistress of the battlefield. Belforet, Father Lejuge, and Corozet affirmed that it was picked up next day with great pomp by the clergy of the quarter, and placed in the treasury of the Church of the Holy Opportunity, where the sacristan earned a handsome income until 1789 by his tales of the wonderful miracle performed by the statue of the Virgin at the corner of the Rue Mauconseil which had, by its mere presence, on the memorable night of January 6, 1482, exorcised the spirit of the defunct Eustache Moubon, who, to outwit the devil, had, in dying, maliciously hidden his soul in his mattress. Unquote. Another scene I will long count as among the funniest I have encountered in literature is the one in which Gringoire is challenged to fumble the snot, or frisk the mannequin. The comic melodrama of this being the test on which Gringoire's life depends, his poetic pleas to the bells not to ring out his doom, jingle not, ye jinglers, his determined, desperate, and utterly inept attempt, and then, quote, he strove mechanically to cling to the figure, lost his balance, and fell heavily to the ground, deafened and stunned by the fatal sound of the myriad bells of the mannequin, which, yielding to the pressure of his hand, first revolved upon its own axis, then swung majestically to and fro between the posts. A curse upon it, he cried as he fell, and he lay as if dead, face downwards." Unquote. The image of him engaged in a delicate effort to pick the mannequin's pocket without disturbing the bells, then grabbing onto it bodily, causing all the bells to ring loudly in chorus, and falling flatly face-first to the ground, is one I will never forget. I'd love to hear which scenes you found the funniest. There are so many more to choose from. The last of my posts to the Facebook group was called Living, Living, Palpitatingly Alive. I have confessed before that I have a subconscious bias toward dialogue. I also have a bias toward sections of a novel that are palpably advancing the central plot. It is a bias worth fighting against, and as evidence I present The Court of Miracles. I started this novel a few months ago, and I found myself losing focus in the chapters we just read. My subconscious was tugging me forward, scanning for the names I knew to be at the novel's core, Quasimodo, Esmeralda, Claude Frollo. But thanks to this group, this time I was forced to slow down. 
Reading the chapters out loud and preparing the focus summaries necessitates patience and focus, and I'm so glad it does, because I now adore these chapters. And I strongly suspect that not only have I gained an appreciation for these chapters in and of themselves, but that that appreciation will compound my enjoyment of the central plot. Critic Jules Janin said of Notre Dame, quote, All the foulness, as well as all the faith, of the Middle Ages are kneaded together with a trowel of gold and of iron. At the sound of the poet's voice, all that was in ruins has risen to its fullest height, reanimated by his breath. Unquote. In the time of Hugo, the site of the Court of Miracles had long been demolished, and today, all that remains to mark their existence is a commemorative plaque. But in these chapters, Hugo did indeed breathe vivid life and visionary imagination into this medieval scene. From the sight of the perambulating cripples, quote, the complicated system of crutches and wooden limbs which supported him made him look like a mason's scaffolding walking off by itself, unquote. To the sound of the orphan's kettle scraping, quote, a noise which would have distracted Stradivarius, unquote. To the smell of the Paris mud, Hugo uses sensory poetry to give reality to a world that Gringoire calls scarcely fitted to poetry, even if it were the poetry of hell. In his introduction, Frank T. Marzial said, quote, Victor Hugo's world in Notre Dame is a world seen in fever vision, or suddenly illumined by great flashes of lightning. The medieval city is before us in all its picturesque huddle of irregular buildings. We are in it. We see it. Living, living. Yes, the book is unmistakably, palpitatingly alive. It does not live, perhaps, with the life of prose and everyday experience, but it lives the better life of imagination. The novelist, by force of genius, compels our acceptance of the world he has created. Unquote. The characters at the novel's core, though they have been skirting the edges, are about to take center stage. But meanwhile, let's succumb to the world Hugo has created. <laughs>